Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Adam Feuerstein, here with you once again from my Cambridge, Mass. apartment. I'm Rebecca Robbins, socially distancing in the San Francisco Bay Area. Our co-host, Damien Gardet, is off this week, pretending to be on a fabulous overseas vacation while actually sitting on his living room couch. We miss you, Damien. It's Thursday, April 23rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, our colleague Helen Branswell will join us to talk about the ousting of a vaccine agency director. She'll also brief us on why so many epidemiologists were in denial for so long about the pandemic emerging before their eyes. Next, medicinal chemist and noted industry blogger Derek Lowe will call in to share his thoughts about the race to develop vaccine candidates to protect against the novel coronavirus. Then our colleague Sharon Begley will join us to discuss the growing evidence suggesting that ventilators may be overused in some COVID-19 patients. And last but not least, we'll do a lightning round. That'll mean rapid fire takes on Biogen's earnings call, a therapeutic video game, and the fate of next year's JP Morgan conference. But before we get to this week's podcast stuff, Rebecca and I humbly ask that you consider subscribing to Stat Plus. That's right. You know, at the risk of sounding too self-promotional, a Stat Plus subscription gives exclusive access to news analysis that often moves biopharma stocks. Yeah. And at a time when Stat is making all of its coverage of the coronavirus crisis free, your support of our subscription business is appreciated even more. So you can subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. That's 10% off your first year by using the code P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. The coronavirus pandemic is basically the only story in the world right now. So who better to join us for this first segment than Helen Branswell, Stats lead reporter on COVID-19. This will probably make Helen blush, but Helen was recently described in a New York Times story about Stat as, and I quote, a godlike figure to people who are infectious disease epidemiologists. Helen, welcome back to the show. Hi, and yes, I'm blushing. (laughs) So let's start with what's shaping up to be the biggest COVID-19 story of the week, and that is the ousting of the director of the federal agency known as the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA. That U.S. official, Rick Bright, was demoted this week from his post leading BARDA, which is tasked with developing vaccines. And that story was first scooped by Stats' own Nicholas Florco. Yeah, and in a really remarkable statement after his ousting, Bright said that the Trump administration is politicizing science. Bright said that he was forced out for refusing to invest federal money in the untested malaria drugs known as hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine that President Trump had embraced. But the story is complicated because Bright has been involved in federal work around those drugs in recent weeks, and he's also clashed with his boss. So Helen, what do you make of the whole situation around Bright? You know, it was clearly a power struggle and he lost. Rick Bright has been the head of Barter for quite a long time. Uh, Before that, he was in the vaccine industry. and, And before that, at the CDC, he has a long, long history in vaccine development. And one would have thought would have been pretty much ideally 
situated now to be trying to run an agency tasked with trying to spearhead development of vaccines in a hurry. But that clearly isn't the thinking of someone or more than one person above him. And he has been shunted aside. So, Helen, moving on, you had a great story this week uh, headlined, quote, the months of magical thinking. And the story described the period in the first weeks of 2020 in which leading epidemiologists were in denial about the crisis that was unfolding clearly and devastatingly. Tell us what you learned from that reporting and why some of these infectious disease experts had such a hard time seeing this coming. Well, so I had been doing interviews on this emerging outbreak since the first days of the year, really. Our first story on what is now COVID-19 ran on January 4th. And for weeks, I would be talking to people about what was going on in China and the fact that cases were emerging from China and going into Thailand and Singapore and Hong Kong and Taiwan and a bunch of other places And hearing people say, well, we're still not seeing it behave outside of China like it does in China. And I could not figure out why, one, that was true, because it was, you know, it seemed like it was spreading at a much slower rate outside of the country. But also, it didn't make any sense to me that we could expect it to behave differently outside of China than it did in China. It's a respiratory virus. It doesn't care whose throat it infects. It just wants to infect throats. And even well into February, people were saying, well, we're not really seeing it. But they weren't taking into consideration that one of the reasons they weren't seeing it was because so little testing was being done. And because there were so many mild cases, there was just a lot of transmission occurring that wasn't being detected. And for weeks, people kept sort of clinging to this notion that it might behave differently outside of China than it did inside of China. And then in about the third week of February, there was this an explosive outbreak in Iran. And a few days later, northern Italy just exploded. And, and we saw that, in fact, the virus behaves exactly the same everywhere it goes. And do you think the infectious disease community's experience with past outbreaks played into their reaction to this virus? So we're talking SARS in the early 2000s, the various bird flus of the last couple decades. Yeah, I do. I mean, one of the things that happened when the virus moved out of the Chinese mainland was that it first went to places like Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore. These are all places that had SARS outbreaks in 2003 and really have sort of the psychological scars of battling SARS still. They all have really ramped up their public health capacity in the intervening time, and they acted really aggressively. And as a consequence, those places haven't gone into sort of the huge upswing of cases that many other places around the world have seen. And in fact, that may have contributed to the sense elsewhere that this might not be going to explode elsewhere because... Hong Kong and Taiwan and Korea to an extent were able to keep it from going into that huge growth curve. Elsewhere, I think things like the 2009 H1N1 pandemic probably had an impact. At the beginning, no one knew how bad that was going to be. And there was a full court press And then it turned out to be mild by pandemic terms. And there was a lot of backlash. Governments were really annoyed about having spent money on vaccine that nobody wanted to get. And as a consequence, I think there are still some scars in parts of the infectious disease world where people are just really concerned about ringing the alarm too soon. So Helen, I know everyone is 
you know, super focused on the coronavirus pandemic, but you've also been tracking a different infectious disease, and that's the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, which is now, I think, ongoing for something like 20 months. There's been some disappointing news there recently. Can you give us an update? Yeah, it's just heartbreaking, really. I think on April 12th, the World Health Organization and, and the Congolese government were going to be able to announce that the outbreak was finally over. They have to go two full incubation periods, which is 42 days without any cases. Two or three days before that announcement could have been made, there was a discovery of a case in a place called Beni, which has been off and on really the center of this outbreak. This was somebody who had been in a number of healthcare facilities looking for care, and it quickly became apparent that he and others have infected more people. So far, they've found six cases. Four of them have died. One of them is in a treatment facility, and one of them escaped a treatment facility and is hiding in the community, which means there likely will be more cases still. So, you know, an outbreak that seemed like it was over is not over. And, you know, it's a devastating time for this to happen because the Democratic Republic of the Congo is also seeing an upswing of cases of COVID-19. The world's attention is elsewhere. Resources are scarce at this point. And the notion of this outbreak resuming in any real way is is petrifying. Well, Helen, thanks as always for coming on the show and keep up the important reporting. Thank you. Nice to hear you guys. Most experts agree that the best way out from the pandemic, perhaps the only way out, will be the development of an effective and safe vaccine that protects people from being infected with the novel coronavirus. Or vaccines, plural. Right now, there are five vaccines in clinical trials and another 70 plus candidates in preclinical development. That is according to a list compiled and updated by the WHO. So joining us today to help explain how these coronavirus vaccines might work, because many are so different, is Derek Lowe. Derek is a medicinal chemist employed in the pharma industry, and he has a side gig as the author of the industry blog, In the Pipeline. Derek is also a repeat guest on The Read Out Loud. Derek, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I I enjoy doing it. So Derek, you wrote a great piece on your blog recently that helped explain the different approaches being used to develop coronavirus vaccines. Let's start with what might be the sexiest flavor. That's the use of messenger RNA or mRNA. Moderna has started to inject healthy volunteers with its mRNA vaccine. And there's also a second mRNA vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech. That's a German biotech, which now has clearance to start a clinical trial later this month. Explain to us how mRNA vaccines work. Well, there's two broad categories of vaccine. You can give people the antigen, the protein that you want the body to develop immunity to. You can give it directly or you can make a person's cells make that antigen for you. And that's where the mRNA vaccines come in. That's one way to do it. You inject someone with an mRNA that you've engineered so that when it gets into a cell, the body picks it up, treats it like any other messenger RNA and says, okay, I got to convert this into a protein. You have written the mRNA so it produces a viral protein. So you turn your own body cells into small factories producing antigen and dumping it out into the blood and hopefully raising a really strong immune response. 
So there are no approved vaccines or even medicines, for that matter, that rely on mRNA today. So what are the challenges that a company like Moderna and others face? Yeah, they're significant. Uh, You're right. There aren't any approved ones yet. Moderna has been working with Merck and several others on a number of mRNA vaccines. It's a really promising idea. mRNA apparently can raise a pretty strong immune response, but nothing's made it all the way through. One tricky part with all of these RNA and DNA-based therapies is that if you just take the naked stuff and inject it into someone, it doesn't last long. There are all sorts of tricks that have been developed over the years to make them more stable, to make them more likely to be picked up in cells, to make them more likely to be turned into protein once they're in the cells. And it's safe to say that every single one of these tricks is being deployed probably simultaneously. So the coronavirus vaccine candidate that's furthest along in clinical development, I believe, comes from a Chinese drug maker called CanSino Biological. How does that candidate work? Well, it's a little different, but it's the same idea of getting your body to make the antigen proteins. This is one where they have taken another virus, in this case, an adenovirus, which is a very common, mild thing that infects human cells, and they've stripped out its genetic payload and put in genetic instructions to make a viral antigen for the coronavirus. This has been done with a number of vaccines that are already in clinical use. So this sort of switch out the RNA or switch out the DNA has been used before. They are very far along. They've talked about already putting it into phase two, probably right about now. It's a perfectly reasonable approach, but this kind of thing, the only way to find out about any of these is to dose them in humans and see what happens. There's going to be an awful lot of empirical try it and see that we're going to have. So, Derek, you know, when most people think about vaccines, they're probably most familiar with the shots they received as children, you know, against diseases like mumps, measles, rubella. How are these vaccines constructed? And is this type being considered or tried for the coronavirus? Yeah, that's an interesting way of, of doing it. The MMR vaccines and some others use what are called attenuated virus. In that case, you take the actual virus that's causing the disease and you try to develop a form of it, an infectious form, that will set off the immunity but not really give you the disease. And to do that, you'll take the virus and run it through cell culture over and over and over and over letting it kind of mellow out to have a weaker form. It'll still infect cells, but it doesn't cause all the trouble. Some viruses you can do that with and some you can't. So no one is sure yet if we can get an attenuated form of the new coronavirus. There have also been calls to start looking around out in the wild to see if we can find an attenuated coronavirus that's already attenuated itself. So more broadly speaking, what is your take on the speed at which we could expect to see clinical proof of efficacy and safety of a coronavirus vaccine? You know, is the 12 to 8 month time frame that gets tossed out there realistic or is it a pipe dream? Oh, some of each. That would break all records. It's not impossible, but for that to happen, everything is going to have to work really well and it's basically going to have to work really well the first time through. That would be unusual for a vaccine program. There's a lot of attrition in the vaccine world. The good side is, though, as you mentioned earlier, we have a lot of vaccine candidates that are entering investigation. So the hope is, is that we're going to have the usual horrible success rate, but we've got 
a record-setting number of people trying this with all different approaches, and that those two will cancel each other out and that something will come through. As I say, not impossible, but hold your breath. And Derek, without an effective vaccine, do you think we can expect a return to normalcy? I really don't think so. The closest we could get besides a vaccine was if, if we had a really good, say, monoclonal antibody therapy. That's not as good, though, because it doesn't give you immunity. The good part of that would be if you get sick, at least you know there's something they can give you. But as far as people not getting sick, vaccine is the only way to go. Well, Derek, thanks for joining us. Glad to. Thanks for having me. Anyone following the coronavirus pandemic from home, and who isn't these days, has heard the heartbreaking stories of patients with severe COVID-19, hospitalized with lungs so ravaged by the virus that their only chance of survival is to be hooked up to mechanical ventilators. But like so much about this new virus, the medicinal playbook that dictates when to use ventilators and on which patients is changing rapidly as doctors learn more about the disease. Our colleague Sharon Bagley has been following and writing about this aspect of COVID-19, and she joins us to tell us more. Sharon, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Adam. So let's step back to the early days of this crisis. Why were COVID-19 patients placed on ventilators and when? From the very first cases, um, when patients began showing up in ICUs with extremely low levels of blood oxygen, the playbook, and that's exactly the right word, Rebecca, was to put them on a mechanical ventilator. And that involves intubation and very heavy and usually prolonged sedation. And the reason is that other diseases that produce what's called hypoxemia, namely pneumonia, and in some cases sepsis, are both treated that way, i.e. with ventilators. So since this was a disease that doctors had never seen before, all they could do was be guided by things that seemed like it. And that's why um, hospitals across the world really thought that the only way to save their COVID-19 patients who were in this much respiratory distress was to put them onto a ventilator. So as you've written, Sharon, over time, doctors began questioning the way ventilators are used to treat COVID-19 patients. And that was due in part because of the baffling observation that they saw in these patients' lungs. Can you tell us about that? So there are a couple things that are just um, anomalous about the, the lungs of COVID-19 patients. One is that Areas of healthy tissue in the lungs sit right next to areas that look completely shot. People who have been following this have heard of the ground glass opacity, um, which describes the sort of milky white appearance on the lungs, which indicates infection. The other strange thing is that many of the COVID-19 patients their lungs were coated with some sort of thick mucus-like deposits. So how is that impacting the use of ventilators? So two things. The mucus-like deposits mean that even if you force in oxygen, which is, of course, what ventilators do, the oxygen is not able to reach the cells of the lungs, get absorbed there, and from there, of course, sent into the bloodstream, which is the whole idea of lungs. So even though you're delivering oxygen, it's not getting where it needs to. The second concern is that the healthy tissue next to the diseased tissue, when you force air into the lungs, those healthy areas are elastic, which means that the forced air is pushing them and sometimes pushing them beyond their capacity. So what more and more ICU emergency medicine physicians and others who are treating these patients are seeing is that the mechanical ventilators are actually 
injuring lungs um, for the first reason, i.e. the existence of healthy tissue, but also not doing very much good for the second reason, that the lungs can't even absorb the oxygen that you deliver. And that's why, you know, just, just tragically, um, very high percentages of patients who are put on the ventilators do not make it. So you might think, well, their chances of making it were not very good, um, as reflected in the fact that they were put on ventilators. But the researchers who have looked at this say that that's not the only thing that's going on. And again, unfortunately, the ventilators um, may be, in some cases, causing significant harm. Um, the latest number I saw came out of a hospital system in New York State, which found that 88 percent of their COVID-19 patients who are put on ventilators did not make it. So that's an incredibly high mortality rate. So these observations and new analyses of data from the COVID-19 patients has led to a changing of this respiratory playbook. What are doctors told to do now? Well, across the country, um, there is still significant reliance on ventilators. And again, that's because doctors are figuring it out as they go along, and they are, you know, just looking at what has worked in what they thought were similar cases. However, with the recognition that ventilators may be either not helping or potentially harming in some cases, we're seeing slowly an adoption of two new protocols. One is do not be guided, or certainly do not be guided solely by patients' blood oxygen levels. If they fall below really the, the low 90s into the 80s and, and even lower, that's a, you know, a code situation. You have to get that person respiratory support, and that has basically meant a ventilator. But weirdly, many of these COVID-19 patients who have oxygen levels you know, just crazily low are still able to speak. They are not breathless. Um, one doctor told me that he was instructed to put a patient who was chatting, you know, basically fine on the cell phone, put that person on a ventilator, and he refused. He said, no, this person is not in respiratory distress. I don't care what the blood oxygen level says. So that's the first thing we're seeing, a more judicious use of ventilators. The second thing we're seeing is looking at whether there are alternatives for providing respiratory support. And there, you know, there's some interesting discussion about using CPAP devices. Those are the things that patients with sleep apnea use. Um, those are positive airway pressure devices. A related device is called BiPAP, which is often used for patients with heart failure, um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, and other respiratory conditions. So rather than resorting quickly, um, let alone immediately to mechanical ventilators, physicians are looking to these other less invasive possibilities. And I am size less invasive, because especially for elderly patients, if you put them on heavy sedation for a long time, even if they survive, they very often will have just continuing chronic, very serious cognitive and other damage. And is there any evidence yet that these new recommendations might improve the survival odds for patients with COVID-19? It's too early. I spoke to a physician who works in both the Netherlands and Thailand, said that he was seeing anecdotally, not, you know, rigorous data, that these other devices are definitely able to save patients and without the potential damage of mechanical ventilators. The guidelines that you referred to, Rebecca, came out by the from the National Institutes of Health um, earlier this week. And they did not go so far as to say, you know, do not use ventilators, do not be guided by blood oxygen levels, but they did recommend a phased approach 
to breathing support, starting, you know, with the simple nose prongs um, that deliver oxygen um, directly, and then maybe escalating to the CPAP or other devices and intubation only if strictly necessary. Now, because those came out only a few days ago, no idea how widely they're being adopted, let alone what the consequences are. But unfortunately, since the pandemic is going to be with us for some time, those data might emerge pretty quickly. Sharon, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Hey, Rebecca, let's do a lightning round. Yeah, let's do one. It's been a bit. So let's start with Biogen, which we heard from for the first time uh, since the coronavirus pandemic broke out. Adam, what did they say on their earnings call this week? Yeah, this was a call that was pretty highly anticipated for a couple of different reasons. One, you know, as you mentioned, this is the first time that we'd heard from Biogen executives since their, you know, their so-called super spreader event that occurred here in Boston in late February and early March. So we kind of knew that some of the top executives at Biogen had come down with COVID-19 and recovered. Uh, We don't know who exactly, but we did hear from everyone. They sounded healthy. More importantly, this was going to be an update on the filing of their Alzheimer's drug, aducanumab. And what we heard during the call was that there was a delay. Instead of having that drug submitted to the FDA by now, it was supposed to be submitted in early 2020. Now they're telling us that the drug will not be filed until the summer, the third quarter. And that has raised a lot of questions. Yeah, and I take it investors were not thrilled based on the reaction in the stock? Yeah, stock fell. And because, well, they didn't really give very good reasons for the delay. You know, they talked a little bit about some of their employees getting COVID-19, having to recover. And, you know, that's perfectly understandable. We all know the disruption that this disease has caused everybody. But at the same time, they talked about having to have another meeting with the FDA before filing. They talked about how the data analysis was very complex. And the sense we got from investors and analysts was that this was kind of a smokescreen, that there's something going on, that maybe the FDA is not all that thrilled with the data. As we know, you know, this is a very controversial drug. It, you know, it had one failed study, one positive study, and even the positive study might not be so positive. So all in all, there was just a lot of uncertainty. So longtime listeners of the podcast may remember that we have talked about an, a kind of unique interactive uh, video game from a company called Achille. And there's been an update this week. Rebecca, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so that video game got rolled out this week in a very unusual way. It's certainly not one that the maker of the game would have ever anticipated. So the FDA had relaxed rules on the approval process and regulatory enforcement of low-risk mental health devices. And so Achille jumped on this guidance. It's making the game available for free for eligible children for up to three months during the pandemic period. And this is all happening while the company is still waiting for uh, approval from the FDA. So it's sort of this weird rollout in advance of what they hope will be a, a marketing authorization decision that will allow them to get 
the game prescribed by doctors and get it reimbursed by insurers. And I imagine that parents who are growing exasperated with both babysitting their children and trying to school them at home are probably very happy about a new video game coming out. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this game is not fun in the way that a commercial video game you might play on your PlayStation is. It's it's challenging and, and can be frustrating because of kind of the, the therapeutic effect, the effort to uh, activate and strengthen neural networks. So it'll be interesting uh, as this game rolls out and starts getting used, how kids react to it. And lastly, listeners to this podcast know that we've talked about JP Morgan 2021, the big healthcare conference, whether it's going to happen. There was a little bit of wrinkle to that story this week. Rebecca, tell us about it. Yeah. So CDC director Robert Redfield gave an interview uh, with the Washington Post, and he predicted that next winter's uh, wave of the coronavirus could be worse than this first wave that we're currently dealing with. He predicted that we're going to have the flu epidemic and the coronavirus epidemic at the same time. And if we thought hospitals are overwhelmed now or bracing for being overwhelmed, that could be potentially catastrophic to be dealing with both at the same time. Yeah, and I think President Trump tried to get Redfield to sort of walk back that dire prediction a little bit this week. But the point still stands that, you know, most experts agree that, you know, we could see a second wave of the coronavirus this winter, which would be when we would all be gathering in San Francisco for the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. Um, I'm not going. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Abinato, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you'd like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how much you miss Damien when he's not on the show with us. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback. And if you like what we do, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay healthy and see you next week.